0: We're listening to Tasting Together with Andre Brew and Maroki Tom.
1: Andre, how much Halloween candy do you have this year for the kiddies?
0: I have about 200 pieces.
1: It's a lot of pieces. Do you actually get that many kids in your neighborhood?
0: We did the first year that we were here. So I'm not a big fan of Halloween. Um, I've never really been a big fan of Halloween. But when my wife and I moved to Hamilton... The first year we bought 200 pieces of candy and I think it was like a Friday night or Saturday night Halloween. And we ran out of candy by like 8.30 and we had to be the a-holes that turned our lights off. So the second year in uh, 2022 I bought like 500 pieces of candy. Oh my god. And the thing is it was like I think a rainy night and like a Thursday or something and we had so much candy left that by the end of the night we just left a giant bowl on our front step. And it was actually really funny. Around like Like we must have done that at like eight forty five, and then at like eight fifty, we saw some teenager roll up to my front step and take everything. Camera and literally take the bowl and dump it into his bag. Of course. Um, and the other thing I love about Halloween and Halloween candy is um my nephews, my two nephews, Tristan and Kylan. Where if you go back and listen to the global news feed of tasting together, you can hear when we were talking to my nephews about school lunches and how excited they were about what they were taking for lunch. I don't know how many times Tristan has taken sushi, but spoiler alert, (laughs) he said that sushi is his favorite thing to take in lunch where there was no love for egg salad or tuna in that house. But uh, during the pandemic, um, both like really bad 2020 and 2021 pandemic Halloweens, the kids both had COVID exposures. So couldn't go out for Halloween. So, both years, I sent them one of those Canada Post large boxes. Right. And filled it right to the brim. So, I basically sent them like two years, 30 pounds worth of Halloween candy.
1: So, was your sister-in-law and, and brother mad at you for that? Because uh, that sounds like the thing that like the cool uncle does, and then you end <laughs> up hating your parents for the rest of the year because they're not as cool as your uncle.
0: The third year, my brother very firmly told me not to send candy and i was just like well this is how traditions start you gotta (laughs) do this on traditions No, and it was um it's just something i really um respect my brother for because also something else we've talked about on the on the radio show is just having a healthy relationship with food and the challenge i face all the time is just like turning into the cookie monster every time there's a bag of cookies in front of us it's just like my brother doesn't doesn't let my nephews go willy-nilly but also doesn't you know, prevent candy from being in the house. And I actually look at my nephews and see that they have a relatively healthy relationship with what's good food and what's bad food. And I admire my brother and my nephews for that.
1: I was the kid where my parents split a gummy bear, like a single gummy bear into four pieces. Mm. And I would get one of those quarters. And then I think I managed to graduate to two pieces of So Delicious in my lunch by grade two. So candy and fast food was very much not a part of my household to the point where when Halloween came around... It was an opportunity to get all the really like cool candies. I couldn't get like Reese's Pieces, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter cups, my favorite. And I kid you not, I would have it in a drawer and I think I would eat like the corner of a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup and I would make it last two to three months. It probably is disgusting. Like that sounds not sanitary and absolutely gross, but I would eat little bits of it week over week just so I could make it last as long as I could. I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. Um I know in my household so I live in a condo so the trick or treating condo to condo is not a thing that my uh that our condo building is really for and I think it's good for safety reasons and all that they usually just keep a bowl in the lobby but my sister lives in 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 a house and she's already bought her halloween candy and we've been siphoning off the coffee crisp for
0: I ourselves I mean that's how it goes so so um I've been trying to get back on track with eating healthy like I did during the pandemic and learning that like what I did in the 2020 year was a little bit extreme for my lifestyle. Like going all salads all the time was clearly not sustainable. But I'm trying to find some balance. Hershey's has this like dairy milk covered Oreos.
1: Dairy milk covered Oreos. That sounds so cheat day. Like yeah, a- it cheat day is extra.
0: And it's just like dairy milk is already like one of the better, like just plain milk chocolates. Like when you get that in your bag, like just plain milk chocolate, not candy bar, but like milk chocolate. But to put an Oreo in the center of that, whoever decided to do that, I think, um, I think might be on the way to solving world peace. We just got to send Oreo covered milk chocolate to everybody on the planet. What I'm saying is clearly a joke, not in any way <laughs> to actually make fun of the fact that we have far too many armed conflicts taking place in the world right now.
1: Uh, you know, it's interesting all of us like talking about kind of like, pill- like pillaging uh, the box of candy before the kids get to it on Halloween because I feel like that leads sort of into the conversation that we were trying to talk about. I know we all uh, want to talk about Halloween candy, but the big thing that happens around Halloween is that we see a plethora of content come up that talks about pairing uh, wine forgot with a Halloween there.
0: You forgot about a keyword there. uh uh-huh. Plethora of bad content. That talks about pairing wine with Halloween candy.
1: And what constitutes bad content for you?
0: It's n- the existence that, of it? But I mean, it's just, it's something that nobody does. It, it's completely useless content. It, it does nothing to add to the wine culture, it does nothing to add to candy culture. Like, and you and I, we spend a lot of time like really thinking about what sort of message we're sending out, sending out into the world. Later on in this show, we're talking about eating seal meat. That's a concerted decision you and I are making. To be pro seal hunt, which whether we like it or not is political. But I mean, that's going to be something we get to later. The thing I really don't like is like first off, nobody's sitting at home with a bottle of Spat Lazy, hoovering their kids' rockets, being like, "Oh my god, this is such a beautiful pairing."
1: That's so specific. It's almost like you thought about it. Rockets out of all the pairings Ach. of Spat Lazy.
0: I'm, but I mean, it's like it, like it's just the optics of like mom and dad having their kids Halloween candy coming home. And like waiting to open a really nice bottle of wine, which nobody is doing, to pair with your Reese's peanut butter cups that you really like covet. It's just like, it's garbage content. And it's just like, I've I've been fairly critical of Halloween, uh, Thanksgiving pairings. And that's one where I do it more tongue-in-cheek, like just because the Thanksgiving spread is more bland. Like, I do think there is some value in talking about Thanksgiving wine pairings because that's something people do. You show up at your family's house, you want to bring a nice bottle of wine to share with your family. Nobody is buying a nice bottle of wine to steal their kids' effing Halloween candy. Stop with this awful garbage content, please.
1: It, and I think the fascinating thing about it is too, is like, you and I, and probably a little bit more me, because I'm a bit more rebel that way, is just, I, I don't mind doing weird things. I don't mind, like, me challenging neither. preconceptions or preconceived notions about wines and pairings. Like, the, you know, I even had... Uh, a tasting day where I was talking about like, yeah, you don't need to be always pairing white with fish, right? Like all these traditional totally. pairings. we can be non-conventional, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some pairings that just truly were never meant to exist. Yeah. Right? Like I know you're not a wine and chocolate person. I am a wine and chocolate person. It's an interesting debate, but I also and,
0: get it. I and, also yeah, get it. Like it's I, something I don't like, but I understand it. And it is something that
1: people do. And I think it's interesting that you brought up Reese's Peanut Butter Cups because if I had to pick any sort of candy to pair with wine, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups probably comes a little bit closer because at least there's some savoriness from the peanut notes. Like, I know peanut butter, uh, peanut M&M's has been a part of it and I'm like, you know, I get it. And it's about flavor and profiles. And I think inherently when you pair candy corn with, or Rockets per se, with wine, you're literally putting pure sugar with a, a glass of you know, typically dry wine, or I guess even, but like even an off dry wine inherently isn't going to do a disservice to both products. And it's not no. for lack of trying. I actually even tried a wine pairing last Lunar New Year where I was trying to pair traditional Chinese candies no. with wine for fun. And I thought maybe there was an opportunity for it to work because a lot of it's like candied carrots and a lot of it's fruits or vegetables. And I thought perhaps even if there's a crystalline sugar around it, that earthy note may pair. Okay. And I I think that was how I merged. And I I have a whole Instagram reel about it. It basically comes out where I say, paired okay with some of the dishes because obviously the carrots show through, but at the heart of it, I'd rather just pair it with tea. And it's because inherently that sugar fights so hard against the wine that the wine just ends up tasting acrid and bitter. It's almost like, I'm not going to dig into the science of it, but there's literally a science behind that. It's the same reason why Pairing asparagus is often a challenging thing. It comes down to the chemical <laughs> properties and how it matches up against the wine.
0: Okay, so quick shout out to your Instagram at nine ounces, please. After I went on my rant where clearly I'm worked up about it, are we going to see some content from you pairing Halloween candy with wine this year?
1: I don't think I've ever done it before, so probably not. You'll probably just see me put on a Halloween filter, which is usually what I call the <laughs> cheap out on a Halloween costume. It's like, too lazy to put on a wig and the instagram filter does a great job and then i swirl a glass of wine while at it it is i i don't eat too much candy inherently you've already heard that if i was pairing it with anything it may be with a little bit of uh uh peanut m ms or reese's peanut butter cup but at that point of it i might as well just enjoy i don't know some port or something
0: oh port and chocolate uh once again like all the points in my life where
1: kahlua and coffee Chris. (laughs) There we go. That's my parent. You already got it. I don't need no. I don't need no stinking Instagram content on that.
0: You know, I know. I don't think he's going to be listening to the podcast. But Conrad Edgwick, who used to be the wine writer for CBC, there's a couple times in my life where I've drawn like a hard line and strong opinions on social media, and he's always there with an academic contrarian point. And he's the <laughs> one where like I've drawn such a hard line on red wine and chocolate in particular, and he was just like, "What about port and chocolate, Andre?" And it's just like ah, I totally get that and it does work and it's completely like correct. Anyways.
1: I, I think, you know what, maybe as a closing note to all of this too is that, um, you know, when we talk about content and I I am a believer that anyone, it's like, you know, I know some of the commentary is just like, let people do what they want and mm-hmm, let people enjoy mm-hmm. what they're doing. But I think one of the things that we should often take responsibility about when we are considered an expert in a field is we remember that we're sharing this content, someone's going to give it a go. Yep. and someone's going to believe that this is appropriate and this is okay. Yeah. And if it doesn't turn out well, and if it if it has a high percentage, a high chance of it not turning out well, you've now alienated someone from possibly enjoying wine a certain way or enjoying a certain type of wine. If they're like, I ne- you know, I, I it's like someone who's like, I never liked red wine or something. Now they're going to just hate red wine.
0: Or at worst. You're encouraging parents to steal Halloween candy from their kids <laughs> to pair with wine. That is also highly problematic for me. I can't imagine sleeping well at night if I was stealing Halloween candy from little baby Spencer.
1: If I if I stole the coffee crisp before the boxes of candy were even given out to kids, is that allowed? Okay? That is
0: allowed. That, that is, allowed. is allowed. That is the point. That's why they come in hundred packs. When they t- <laughs> when the kids actually show up, they're more like ninety, maybe eighty <laughs> packs.
1: Okay. All right. And you know what? If any of you have really strong opinions about pairing Halloween candy with food, you can always hit it up. Hit us up. We're right here. Andre Wine Review and Maroki at 9 ounces, please. Send us your DMs if you very strongly believe there's a pairing that we should be trying. I guess. I mean, I guess I'll try it. You tell me to try it. I'll try it at least once.
0: (laughs) You know, today was a good day. We're recording this on a, a, a Monday in Hamilton. It was overcast. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. I just uh, pulled some pork off the smoker. And you and I, we had a chance to enjoy a bottle of Weisbergunder that I brought back from not Germany.
1: Yeah, I was actually um, confused for a couple of minutes. And now, spoiler alert, guys. I was aware that um, there's a reason why wine from Italy, out of all places, is being called Weisbergunder. But Andre, I'm not going to uh, steal your thunder as to why, and all our listeners, if you know the answer to this, cool, because I didn't. So, Andre, tell everyone why we were drinking Weissburgunder from Alto Adige.
0: Well, we were drinking Weissburgunder because Alto Adige, I think the best way I heard it described is a region of Italy that has German precision with a little bit of the laid-back Italian sentiment. And I've got to say, I've been to Italy three times now. I haven't been to, like, the big, big, like frontline regions. I've never been to Tuscany or Sicily. Um, I went to Franciacorta. That, like, trip changed my life. And I try to keep Franciacorta in my house at all times and tell everyone about it. I went to Abruzzo. Um, I had a good time. And
1: uh you also- see the look on his face when he said that.
0: <laughs> I went to Alto. Well, I mean, I learned stuff about Abruzzo. I think I need to go back just to, like, really, really dig in on that. Um, but I went to Alto Addijay. And this was another moment where I went to a, a a part of the world that completely changed my life. Uh and I'm not saying that to be like overly dramatic or anything like that. It's just like
1: No, I get it. There's you, there's places you go and they truly are astounding, especially when you are an old jaded wine writer like you are.
0: Yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll take ownership of that. But I I mean it's a thing. You know what? I actually thought about you quite a bit during the trip because I know you, especially at this point of your wine writing career, is you really like to jump up and down and advocate for the little guy. I do. And like, Alto J was awesome because it is the little guy. They don't make a whole lot of wine. But when you see the little guy that isn't getting attention and they've really got their shit together, it's like, oh my God, how can you not just like want to just start flying a flag and do that and
1: yeah you're like how do i just like bring you in by the truckloads to lcbo and thrust you on the shelves and well the thing
0: is now that i know about how the lcbo works i would not want to do the disservice of the region to do it the lcbo but
1: fair but this is an acknowledgement that that's how most of the consumers will ever get their wines of any kind so if you're trying to get alto adige in their hands and they don't know to go through consignment or go through a bottle shop. But this is, hey, this is my side shout out. Hey, guys, you know, if you go to random restaurants in the GTA and beyond, a lot of them just sell wines by the bottle these days that you can take home. Do it.
0: And it's also highlighting a problem at the LCBO that unless it says Tuscan or Sicily on the bottle, it's probably not going to hit the shelf, which means we're not being serviced with the best wines in the world. We're being serviced by the best wines in the world that are willing to play the game or are in massive production. But that's a whole nother podcast for another time.
1: Yeah, you should also talk about it's not just German precision, but I guess there is like a pretty strong German heritage or else why call it Weisbegun?
0: Oh my god, you talked about cheat days earlier in this. Um I'd like I should like to talk a little bit about like um the tourism angle and just like how scenic it was and it's just like it's one of those things where I left the the, the region and I live in Hamilton. I love living in Hamilton. I do miss some of the density of Toronto or or Montreal or that you get in Vancouver. But Bolzano is a town of like 150,000. Bolzano is where we were based. It put us right in the center of the Alto Adige wine producing region. And like it's a little town with four or five story apartments with commercial space at the bottom. The supermarket across the street from my hotel. Um, I did not like the tea choice in the breakfast <laughs> that was served to me. No, but this is amazing though. It's like I know my way around a European grocery store enough that like I wanted Earl Grey tea. I went out my hotel. Went to the supermarket, got my Earl Grey tea, walked up the street. You got to benefit from me bringing back some thirty-six month and twenty-four month aged Parmesan Reggiano, not the region that I was in, but how could I refuse bringing back some Italian cheese from a farmers market that I was at? And I, I am forever great. Well, I can't wait to take my wife and kid there. Like, I, 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 if anyone was following me, um, go check my highlight reel at Andre Wine Review. I took a gondola ride up. To, like the top of the, the Dolomites just to get a better view uh with uh one of the people from Sopex. shout out to Chloe Touchette, who is an excellent host, an excellent guide, and like a really fun person to travel with, and thank you for inviting me on the trip. But like you the only thing missing on this gondola ride was friggin' Julie Andrews singing. <laughs> Come on, can you do it?
1: Uh what the the hills are alive with the sound of you?
0: Drink burgunder.
1: Drink burgunder for a thousand years.
0: That was basically the soundtrack <laughs> that was in my head. Um, And like the wines. Okay. This is the thing that hurt my heart as an Ontario person. And apologies to anyone working for Wine Country Ontario because I've said this in a couple of outlets now. One of the problems we have in Ontario is our baseline is too low. I went to an Antiprima where they had over 200 wines open across all varieties. The power of Alto Adige is the fact that they have everything planted. It's an Alpine region, so they are able to have cooler climate varieties planted higher up on the mountains. The bottom of the valley, you got lowly Merlot and Cab Sauve down there, and they're killing it across the board. So much of the viticulture, I think virtually all of it is done by hand. And the thing is, even at... So that Weissburgunder under that we drank was 15 euros,
1: $25. It was really good, guys, just saying.
0: And and that's it. And it's just like... I, and
1: Weissburgunder under is, is Pinot Bianco for those of you oh, who right. are like... <laughs> we forgot to
0: get that. We completely buried the lead. <laughs> the, the, the Pinot Blanc, the Pinot Blanc from Alto Adige melted my brain. And I went there looking for Chardonnay because I knew they had Chardonnay plant. And there was good Chardonnay. There was great Pinot Blanc.
1: And it's one of those things where, you know, when we talk about Pinot Grigio, Pinot Blanc. I think we often aren't ready to think about spending a certain amount of money. At mm-hmm. least I don't. I and you know what? Like I should probably that's probably Maroki's like white wine snob hat no, coming it's out.
0: Not. I I like I, I okay, so this is going behind the scenes. What we had was a Weissberg under a, a Pinot Blanc from what was my favorite producer while we were there, and that is Cantina Terlent. In okay. And they are repped in Ontario. They have an agent. It's consignment. They have a Pinot Bianco Reserva that I think in Italy is about 35 euros, so 50 bucks Canadian. I would have been happy to spend the money there to buy a six pack of that wine here is $73. And I had you and Jeff Moot from Divergence, and we were in the backyard having a glass of that Weisberg under. And I was just like,
1: He really wants us to go in on this purchase. Guys. But that's it. Do,
0: do, can I convince people who aren't? familiar with high-quality Pinot Blanc to spend $73 on a bottle,
1: And yeah, I think it's a tough, tough sell. It's the same as, you know, like we know that there's phenomenal Argentinian Malbec. Like we even talked about it with Joaquin Hidalgo last time about how you and I both actually spend our own money um, to play the higher price point, but not everyone's ready to do that because there is already good product in that sub-$20 price range. Oh,
0: the, the last time I talked about the Versado 14, where I was very happy buy the bottle at like 80 bucks Canadian, I took some flack from a sommelier in Toronto who was just like, well, what makes it worth the money? And it was just like, you know, when you are an old jaded wine writer, like you threw me under the bus a little while. It's like <laughs> you've tasted a lot of $80 wines. And here's the thing is most $80 wines are not worth the money. It's so like, when the you The question is, have one- you
1: tasted an $80 wine from a producer that normally makes $20 wines which just shows how high it goes, and I say this about Portuguese wines all the time, right? You spent, you were willing to drop forty, fifty dollars on a single varietal Touriga Nacional made from a really great producer. Yep, it will melt your brain because you will taste things and be like, "How? Why do I spend?" 80 to hundred dollars for Amarone or Napa and not to knock the, like I enjoy Napa wine. I enjoy Amarone now and again, but when you spend that and you think about, if you're thinking about a value to like a quality to value price point, it does. It's amazing what you can get.
0: And the thing is like, those are not wines that you buy to crush on a So The thing is when you find like, I think Versado, I love what Ann and Peter have done with structuring their portfolio. Like I think their entry level at 20 to 25 bucks, even when it pushes 30 bucks is in a good place in the market. But those higher-end wines are worth it. And the thing is, like I said, with Alto Adige, we're now dealing with a problem with because the LCBO doesn't bring a lot of the wines in. How do I go to our, our little group of misfit toys that we share consignment wines with and be like, guys, this is twice the price of what I normally ask you to spend. But trust me, it's the bomb.com. It's tough.
1: Yeah, I guess we just have to trust each other because we are all like jaded wine people and we wouldn't make some, we wouldn't lead someone astray. But I guess, um... Slowly wrapping up on Alto Adige, if there's anything else you want to share with the world about what every, like, why everyone should hop on a plane and go to Alto Adige um, outside of their vice and, and Chardonnay, I guess. I, <laughs> what is there? Okay,
0: I will make this as quick as I can because there was a lot. So like okay. I said, they had all the varieties planted. On September 7th, I went to what was a mini Judgment of Paris type tasting. There were journalists from, uh, there were like I think 80 journalists there. We were from different countries, Japan, Switzerland, Germany, Belgium, United States, Canada, and we all tasted these wines blind. It was a comparative tasting of wines from Cortaccia, which is the sub-region of Alto Adige that specializes in Bordeaux varieties, compared to wines from Bordeaux, California, and Bulgaria. And my takeaway from that, Opus One is still horribly overpriced and overrated, but if you're a baby boomer, you probably love it. Sorry if you're a baby boomer listening to this, <laughs> but um, you should get better taste in Napa wine. Um, the Italian wines showed very well, uh, came at the top of the flight of nearly all of them are tied with a lot of them. The Bordeaux wines in general didn't show well, which I was surprised with, but I'm getting the feeling that the, uh, Cortaccio people may have corked the bat a little bit and found producers who made a little bit greener.
1: Oh, just so that you can make Bordeaux, sure it's like, just to now make look at our them. Italian product instead.
0: We went to a reception that was all sparkling wines from the region. Um, the quality... Was not on par with Francia Corda. Not on par with Champagne. But I think right on par with what we're doing in Ontario and price to match. I okay. think once those wines enter the market if we get a good agent who can so bring So on them, par
1: for where it is in the industry.
0: And that's the thing is like I hate feeling ripped off. Like we talked about like QPR quality to price ratio. If you can get a ball of Alto Adige for sub $50, completely worth it. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, we spent A Saturday morning in two vineyards, I climbed a mountainside. Uh, I got to watch a dude in a Lotus Elise rip through the mountain hillside. That's another reason if we want to talk about the tourism. Rent a really nice, uh, I guess in that case, English, but Italian (laughs) or German-made car and drive fast through the mountains if you have the stomach for it because some of those roads are steep. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Uh, But tasted some amazing Sauvignon Blanc. You and I did the harvest in the Wilms Vineyard in 2021. We got to taste a bit as we go. It's kind of cool to taste what ripe vinifera tastes like and try to picture what it'll taste like when it's fermented. The Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Cantina Polterenzio. See, this is the moment where it's not Italian, it's German, or sorry, not German, it's Italian. Polterenzio, the fruit was so ripe, it tasted like little mango pellets and not grapes.
1: You know, as someone who's not much of a Sauvignon Blanc drinker, I feel like I could be convinced to drink the Sauvignon Blanc, and now you definitely have colored me curious.
0: Wine's fantastic. And then the last shout-out is something I wish I had brought back for you, but I didn't remember my suitcase, and I didn't find I a good one to bring back. I wish
1: I could bring it back, but it's not here.
0: I couldn't find the right example to bring back. There's two indigenous red varieties that are growing in popularity in the region called Java and Lagrange and you can't get them here in wide availability but maybe I'll see if I can find one of I've the heard producers of Black I like
1: I've but so I must have had it at some point
0: Hey the best way I can describe these grapes is the flavor profile is all the good parts of baco noir without the bad parts
1: You guys didn't see me nearly spit out my wine when he was saying this
0: No but I mean that like that that uh wild tannin the like really kind of Savory, earthy thing that you get like I'm trying to i hate I'm trying to word, erase the word foxy from my vocabulary because I don't know what a fox tastes like. I've never stuck on <laughs> fox, for, so I don't think it's fair to call it that, but you know it's that like that wild note that you get in Bacon noir that like Henry and Pelham have done a really good job controlling yeah. with American oak, which is not a dig at American oak. it is what it is. Schiava and Legren has this elegance that Bacon noir is missing, and I tasted these wines and felt that Ontario wine lovers who love Henry of Pelham, who love other people who work with these hybrid grapes, would really get on board with. And I think Alto Adige is going to have a struggle getting those to the market because of the uniqueness of these grapes. But um, I will try to track some down for us to drink together because I think you would really enjoy them. I chose Pinot Bianco because selfishly, it was more adjacent to Chardonnay than Le yeah. Grand or Scala.
1: Or I guess both of us need to go back to Alto Adige and you just know show me the, all the best spots because uh, right now, all I've been doing is couch- traveling and um i've got a book yeah so you're gonna have to take us back and uh, whereas i've just been doing couch couch what is it what, ca- armchair armchair travel. armchair travel with sopexa so my little shout out to sopexa is that they um had me try out their new chablis game which is for wine professionals but i guess super wine nerds as well because um for all it intents fun. and fun pur- yeah for all intents and purposes i'm not like a psalm um you know like i focus on wine content and hospitality But for me, I'm always wanting to geek out. And as someone who's quite bad at memorizing geography, I actually was able to figure out Chablis like Terroirs and Appalachians better doing that interactive game. So I
0: know this is this is a tiny bit like a tiny bit shameless since this was a paid promotion. But I'm completely on board with it because Chablis, something I would talk about anyways, over my left hand shoulder is literally a map of Chablis. To be uh, fair,
1: they didn't pay me to shout them out here. I just thought no, no, they fun. didn't.
0: They didn't. No, okay, yeah, completely fair for the distinction. I was just like you hit on like you. It's not the main talking point. The struggle with Burgundy, and I'm sure we'll unpack it on this podcast in the future, is how important the geography is to the region, and
1: and it's so hard for me, honestly.
0: It, it was hard for me until I went there. So, so Pax, if you're listening, you're okay, go to Burgundy.
1: <laughs> but honestly, like the the Chablis game is. Um, It it literally will take you about 20-ish minutes to complete. There's only four chapters. They take about five minutes per chapter. You do get on a timer, and it puts you on a leaderboard. So if you're longer than five minutes, I'm sorry that I have misled you. It's supposed to take about five minutes. Not to say that you're like
0: that. Give it a go. (laughs) No, but you can always get better. You can try to compete with Captain Chardonnay, which, by the way, apparently Captain Chardonnay doesn't know Chablis as well as he should. Oh,
1: no. Captain Chardonnay did not make it on the leaderboard. Captain
0: Chardonnay did not make it on the leaderboard. All right, Um, we're moving on. You and I talk about sustainability a lot. We talk about sustainability in in wine. Alto Adige, I think, are working really hard on sustainability, which is why the viticulture is expensive. A lot of stuff done by hand. And a clean segue, sustainability means a lot of things, but um, especially you and I are both meat eaters thinking about not just foraging for things like mushrooms and herbs in Mother Nature, but foraging for protein is also something that I think is going to be front of mind especially on this show over the next couple months.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because I I was vegan for a while about I don't know 10ish or so years ago and I know sustainability is often a factor for going plant-based and you know that's why you hear things like meatless Mondays and there is definitely a sustainable element to reducing our meat consumption. But one of the things I learned a lot about is actually when I was vegan was about sourcing meat sustainably and it was actually from talking to a lot of my indigenous friends because when i was vegan i was touting my my veganism i was that vegan (laughs) i had some of my friends were like well it's an an inherent part of who we are hunting right like we are indigenous folk um uh she's um she's algonquin she's anishwabe and was like this is part of our culture and it's about that sort of like cycle of life and understanding using all the ingredients and it kind of got me thinking and so even when i wasn't eating meat i was um, when I was sourcing meat for my family for like family Thanksgivings and stuff, I was trying to do it in a sustainable way, yeah. so when the topic of exploring seal meat was put in from our plates, it was it's something that actually has I've never clued into honestly, if I was super honest, I don't know why. and it's interesting because when I was eleven years old, I did learn about seals as being per, per, like predominant in our in our fur trade culture. I was as eleven year old um given a book called Death on Ice. Which had oh. to deal with the the seal fur trade.
0: So was it an anti fur trade book?
1: It was. It actually wasn't necessarily. Okay. It was like it was kind of agnostic in the way it was like um, his, historical fiction. So the story was actually more about for um, the dangers of hunting in yeah. general in that time. So it was. It's kind of like the whole Hudson Bay story. So it's about oh, people who went out and then their their ship got wrecked or it got lost and then they all the. The Essential end of the story, guys, is that essentially the crew freezes to death, like they all die,
0: and then the seals ate them.
1: N- the, no, the seals did not eat them, but I think it's just a common. It was sort of like an agnostic commentary on the danger. Like it was like just like a historical exploration of what happened to people back then, and of course there was commentary about like you know the seal tr- uh, the seal fur trade being maybe perhaps being like overexploited at the time because yeah. it's a bunch of um, you know like essentially traders like Europeans coming in and deciding oh what a nice hat i will now go and hunt all the seals so it didn't have to do with the sustainability but that, like that was what i'm trying to say is that was what was ingrained in my soul with regards to the relationship with seals in canada because that was what i was exposed to as an 11 year old so to have seal meat being considered a um like a a sustainable protein that canadians should be eating more because we have such an abundance of them was actually a really interesting pitch to me because it really brought me back to when I was backpacking across Iceland, where a whale over there is called a miracle. Like that's the Icelandic word for whale. It's called a miracle because well, you it can feeds feed it, a
0: lot of people with it, one whale. For
1: two to three months. Yeah. And I tried whale when I was over there. I tried puffin when I was over there because like those are reasonably sustainable foods these days. I know like the whaling industry has a very contentious past over there. It's really well, intensely talk, regulated. You, well, now.
0: that's it. You talked about uh overhunting and overfishing yes, and like
1: the herring industry in Iceland, there's like a r- there's actually like it's all covered in a museum about overfishing and how they basically have no herring that shows up in this bay. Well, and that's it. Again. Like,
0: like as a species, we have done incredible damage to the whale population just due to human ignorance. And you know, I was actually happy to see how excited you were about the pitch when it came in because i come from a family of hunters and this is not something i talk about a whole lot my dad doesn't hunt anymore but like i grew up eating deer i've eaten moose um i i was born in yellowknife i remember my dad hunting for caribou i remember my dad making sausage and jerky and we've always been i'm a fisherman we've always been there but i've never eaten seal but you know, one thing you just touched on interesting that we didn't get into with the interview that we're about to throw to is how colonial North Americans essentially co-opted what was a sustainable part of indigenous culture. Because when in in the the treaty times and the the settler times of North America, for lack of a better term, pardon my ignorance of anything I just said was offensive, but when indigenous peoples were hunting you were using animal pelts to build your teepees if you were Plains First Nations. You were using the furs of seals and furs of bears in the Arctic to be what, what to kept you warm. To keep warm. Yourself alive. And, and, then and you there ate, was a you lot less the, waste. Yeah,
1: you used the fats for the oils. You ate it. And I think they they even preserved it. I remember yeah. like, um in, in some of my studies in university, like they were showing how they would preserve the fats and preserve the meats. So... And I think it's um I, I think we mentioned a little bit in the interview, but there's often a part of our own ignorance and, and short sightedness when we judge the consumption of certain meats that's outside of chicken. And perhaps like the question we should ask ourselves, like, is it not more sustainable to be hunting wild meat uh, with our own two hands that is sustainable, that is actually overpopulated right now versus farming, uh, factory farming a lot of meat just because that, that's what makes us comfortable. Right. Like, I think it's. It's worth asking. It actually was an interesting conversation that I know has surfaced in the plant-based community, um, the concept of even vegan leather and vegan furs. They've actually said, you know, perhaps if you really need leather that bad, if you need a leather-based product that bad, it's actually more sustainable to be buying high-quality leather from an animal versus the environmental impact and the carbon footprint left behind to manufacture vegan leather. Yep. And perhaps if you need your leather that bad, but somehow it uh, goes against your ethos, us don't buy leather.
0: Fair point. So <laughs> you and I got uh, deep and dirty into the seal hunt. Apologies in advance. We did have some uh, technological technology issues as we were chatting with Chef Nathan, um, who is one of the uh, advocates for seal meat. Getting on your plate in the seal industry in Canada. And you joined us all the way from Newfoundland.
1: I blame the overcastness of Newfoundland for the they technological satellite problems. satellite
0: internet. How hard is it to do Zoom meetings? I mean, if you and I, I guess, want to go off the grid, we're just going to go off and eat some seal meat.
1: Well, Andre, I know uh, when we talk about wine, wine and food always seem to be synonymously part of our conversations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I always want to talk about diversity of wine pairings, right? Like one okay. of the things I love doing is pairing is pairing like moon cakes with wine or Chinese food with <laughs> wine or spices with wine. But there's this particular, uh, upcoming interview is probably one food item. I've never thought about pairing with wine before, but that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing so.
0: Well, I mean, that's it. Like both of us located in, in like central or South Ontario. You're in the GTA. I mean, I'm in Hamilton. You're in Toronto. I don't even know if there's any, uh, any restaurants in the city that, um, that would serve what we're about to talk about. You know, I, this might be a conversation worth having with uh, Michael Hunter at uh, Antler about whether or not he's ever mm. cooked with uh, seal meat. Um, and it was an interesting pitch that was actually uh, sent to us where, I mean, you and I jumped on it pretty quickly because like, we're always curious about, you know, what goes on our plate. And I think it's important to think about where your food comes from. And um, Chef Nathan Hornridge, who is a chef, a bee farmer and an outdoor enthusiast, is joining us all the way from Newfoundland to talk a little bit about seal meat. Thank you so much for giving us the time, Chef. Well,
2: thanks Thanks for having me, guys, on your show.
1: Yeah, well, let's dive right into it, Chef. Um, You're going to have to school Andre and I a little bit. What does seal meat taste like?
2: So, it is an incredibly unique flavor. And I know you guys have a love for wine pairings and whatnot. And... It's not difficult, in a sense, if you kind of compare it to other meats. You compare a lot of wines along the same sort of lines. Um, but my experience with seal meat came, I'd say, about 10 years ago when I came to Newfoundland. I'm originally from the west coast of Canada, out in um, Victoria, grew up on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and ended up in Newfoundland about 10 years ago, through the jigs and the reels, as they say here, um, and was introduced... To seal, as a result of my kind of philosophy on food, which is kind of to look for what's around you and you know experience what's available um, in your surroundings and make it work. So seal was readily available and incredibly interesting. So to your original question, I guess, what does it taste like? It tastes very unique. It has a very unique texture, a very unique color, a very unique. Um ability to be manipulated into different things to to kind of nail it down into what does it taste like uh i I don't know it's very very unique
1: <laughs> it sort of reminds me of when I had whale in Iceland, which was I would like when when I think when I first talked about seal and I went to the website, and I looked at pictures of it as well it sort of reminded me of that color. And the, what was described to me when I had whale was that it's a cross between tuna and steak and looking at the visuals of seal meat, it had a very similar appearance. And um, I know some of the descriptions talked about how it, how it has like a little bit of an iodine note to it. It's a gamier meat. So my brain was thinking more, I guess, like wild game. It's a very, you know, like seals I, I find are very athletic and as an athletic underwater creature I would assume it would have a gaminess to it, and might be akin to whale, but maybe I'm completely making it up.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's certainly like super lean and protein-rich, and has. I find it hard when people describe things as having a gamey flavor mm. to a, that to seal in a sense that it's it still has a lot of ta- taste and textural properties of something from the ocean, you know. So. Um, it has that salinity when presented properly, which is, I mean, what I do well or what I think I'm trying to present well, when it's presented well, it can be extremely interesting. And I'm I'm looking forward to bringing that to people's plates every night of the week, you know.
0: Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about you bringing it to people's plates. Like it was a, a tough part to a, a tough way for you to describe the unique flavor of seal meat, but what are some of the signature dishes that you're putting together that really go over well at the restaurant?
2: I find technically, and it took me a long time, it was one of those things, and as a chef, this was pretty, a pretty interesting experience and an exciting experience for me to take an ingredient that, you know, there's not a lot of, like, you know, technique Available to you, like, like literature, you can't. You know, there's not a lot of reading. You got to kind of put it in your hands and and make something out of it, which I found fascinating and challenging. And there was moments where you know, certainly there was some catastrophes in the kitchen, but typically uh, the way I approach seal now is I'll take the cuts that can be manipulated in a way where they can be utilized in different fashions and I'll pair it with another protein just to kind of offset the aggressive nature of the flavor of, of the meat if, if you know what I mean and um, prepare it in that way uh, technically when it comes to actually preparing the meat you can utilize it in you know a, in 100 different ways but it's the marriage of seal meat with other ingredients that I find presents itself and makes it extremely palatable and enjoyable to the customer.
1: Do you tend to prepare it with, like, when you say you pair it with another meat, do you pair it with, like, land meat or pair it with, like, other seafood?
2: I find that it's really versatile where it's so lean and it has, like, such a, such a, it has such an ability to be joined with different meats. Like, I do it with lamb and I'll do it with pork and chicken and, you know, even other, others see life per se Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um it's almost like it almost elevates a lot of those things or those things elevate it it's like as a a symbiotic kind of marriage it's interesting for sure Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure um what do you find is like you talked about it being a protein rich a protein rich dish um that like that seems to be a benefit of eating seal meat. Like what is the benefit of people in opening their minds to tasting, more, like tasting or eating or trying seal meat or buying seal based products? Cause one of the things I know when I was looking at the um, Canadian seal meat products website is that it wasn't just about eating seal meat. There was some supplements as well. And it was about like buying the fur. So what's, what's the benefit of consuming seal or introducing seal products into your life?
2: uh also another motivator for me as a chef is to kind of find products that we can take to the public that can benefit everyone both you know nutritiously and economically so seal itself which originally when i was exposed to it i didn't i didn't know all the benefits of it but it's you know it is regarded as probably one of canada's most extreme kind of superfoods you know it's uh, nutritional value when it comes to how protein it is and iron and vitamins.
0: Earlier in the interview, you talked about how, um, as a chef, like your philosophy is is looking at what's available and using it, and obviously being on the East Coast, uh, I'm guessing seal meat is one of the available ingredients. Uh, sorry to go, I guess, kind of dumb question here. But um, my question is for you and the locals and, and the people in the area where you're cooking, how widespread is the consumption of seal meat, and and I guess like sort of the follow up question as well is it kind of like eating horse where you know you have some of that popping up in Quebec, but it's just really out of fashion in a lot of in a lot of places, so um yeah, it's just like how widespread is the consumption of seal meat, and do you see it expanding outside the borders of newfoundland
2: uh, locally for us, the consumption level is not it certainly doesn't meet what can be harvested I mean there's an overabundance of products available to, har- to to harvest and I think that that market will grow and hopefully grows outside of the province and you know as a chef it's kind of my responsibility and I I don't know if other chefs think the same way as I do but to expose the public to an, an ingredient that is underutilized in in the region here um, and bring that to the public and display it in a way that it can be enjoyed. I mean, there's obviously a stigma attached to, to seals that it's, you know, the meat is somewhat unenjoyable, but, you know, um, that's my job is to, to bring it to people and make sure that they understand what they're eating and they understand how to manipulate it and how good it is, you know, for you and how the impact it can have on the economy and, you know, the the indigenous people of the North can benefit greatly from, from growing a, you know, putting a, putting a market out there for seal and, and growing that, whether it's nationally or internationally, or there's, the harvest is, is abundant. Like, like I, I can't even explain how much is there that, you know, and it's very sustainable and it's, it's it's a product that's underutilized, so that's why I'm here is to promote it.
1: Mm-hmm. I actually really appreciate that that you brought that up. That not only does it support indigenous communities, um, but that it's also a sustainable meat. Because I think like as we as you know something Andre and I talk a lot about is the importance of sustainability, the importance of eating locally, so that we're not trying to transport food across the oceans and also supporting like our local farmers and our local agriculture a lot better and that it's overall better for our bodies and for the environment. And even if it means challenging what we are predisposed to assuming like what is, you know, a normal food, quote unquote, uh, and learning to challenge our palates, I think it's going to help us grow a lot more as a food community as well. So that's a really, um, Great information, um, Chef. I think this is one of those things where Andre and I are going to have to see if we can find ourselves a little bit of seal in Toronto. Or if not, I guess we're going to have to travel out to Newfoundland. I think I'm well overdue to explore that side of Canada a little bit more.
2: Yeah, if you log on to the Canadian Seal Products website at com, I believe there is a whole list of um, purveyors. so You might be able to procure some. Um In your locale there, or have some shipped in? I know there's there's distribution in, in Quebec and and go right across. It's an it's a meat that freezes really well. The loins freeze, you know, incredibly well. There's a, you know, an ethical harvest here, and then and then the processing is Health Canada keeps a pretty close eye on it, and a lot of the meat is harvested and can be frozen at sea, and they'll use a lot of seawater in the packaging, and therefore it. I mean, it, it, um, it's an easy thing to transport across the country and the, lean, the, the leanness and the super cleanness of the loins are very, I mean, they can be utilized in uh, you know, a tremendous amount of ways. Even throw it on your barbecue. Hopefully we get to one day in, in your backyard in Toronto, you can throw a piece of seal loin on your barbecue and enjoy it.
0: Right on. Well, thank you so much for giving us the time, Chef Nathan. It was really interesting to learn a little bit more about uh, seal as something that should end up on our plate.
2: Cheers. Thank you guys for
1: having me. Well, Andre, if we can ever procure ourselves some seal meat, uh, we're putting it on your barbecue since you have a better chance of treating it correctly <laughs> than I probably do. When I had whale meat, it came pre-smoked. It was already done and done. So, was it delicious they though? You know, I didn't mind it. Now, okay. like I said, I had it in a really specific way, which was smoked and, like, preserved Icelandic style. So it was extremely smoky. I think when it's cooked, it's served a lot more like a tuna steak.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is something something worth um, worth keeping an eye open for. One thing that we didn't really get into with, uh, with Chef is just, like, I know I, I mentioned Michael Hunter in the interview, uh, the owner of Antler, and, like, he has been the victim of... Um, you know, animal rights activists protesting outside his restaurants and seal hunting and and seal meat in general has long been like a quite popular target, especially for PETA. And it's it's the sort of thing where, from an ecological standpoint, and and chef uh, used the word sustainability towards the end of his interview. And it's it's one of the things where when you talk to the people who live and work on the East Coast, like the economic impact that this seal hunt um, has on the area is. Like it's it's a little bit mind blowing, and also understanding that the fact that they do need to do population control of the seals is something that you know I guess it can be debatable in terms of what um, what the protesters have to say. <laughs> About whether or not I think this the estimation
1: is that because of all the strict rules around seal harvest, is that the seal population is overabundant at yes. more than 10 million, which is the highest number ever observed, and it's actually a threat to other marine species. So I think the idea of trying to, um, kind of lower the population and and fit like it's like we talk about sustainable fishing, right? You yes. don't want to overfish because of something that just because we like it or we're used to it doesn't mean we should be consuming it that way. Or if we think about uh, the way factory farms work in terms of trying to mass, I, I suppose, mass breed animals for our for our dining tables—that's not necessarily sustainable. And here you're actually hunting wild game meat, which I think is more sustainable. Even if we, even if we in our North American palates can't necessarily wrap our minds around it, but I think it's it, that's also like a very predominantly, like I said, north like North American Western mindset.
0: Yeah, I mean the thing I find fascinating about like this kind of next level of farm to table and like forest to table is the whole concept of sustainability. Like we've been very fortunate in our lifetime that if you and I are craving a banana or a pineapple, we can literally buy that year round at the grocery store. And for the most part, I don't think most people give a crap how far it's traveled to get to your plate, you know, looking at at local options and local options to make things super delicious and local options that have not yet been made delicious. So that, you know, what our chef's, can accomplish in the kitchen is something that I think we should all really get behind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we also touched base with Chef about this, but you know, the talking about the supporting of indigenous communities and yes. indigenous cultures, yes. I think is, um, a point that we've never, we, that seal means never really entered that conversation before. We've, you know, we've, we've interviewed Chef Tanya Brandt before yep. from uh, Top Chef Canada, and we've talked about indigenous cuisine, but seals is synonymous with a lot of the Canadian Inuit and Indigenous communities with a really huge history about it. So I think if we're looking at expanding our minds, that's another element if we want to kind of dig deeper into the roots of what Canadian product is all about.
0: Yeah. And like, this is one of those things where it's always bothered me about the scale of the protests where the protests have felt fairly ignorant. And, you know, just one of the things where the whiteness and the colonial part of North America is still like strong and proud like I think it's it's fine if you don't want to eat seal meat and you want to eat just vegetables like that's fine but when you have another culture that's been around a lot longer than yours that was here first um like butt out it's none of your business
1: yeah, and I think another thing has uh, what I appreciate about the sustainability of co two. We didn't talk about it since we were focusing on the meat, but they talk about making supplements out of it, like the oils. They say it's high in omega threes. I'm we're not doctors, so we're not here to to issue medical uh, uh medical advice, but I think it's just interesting <laughs> that, you know, we talk about eating fish for fish oil and for like the omegas. Seal meat does the same thing and they have in supplements, but it's also using the fur um, and using the the skin for the leathers as well. So they're actually using the whole animal. And I think like that for me is another really uh, big plus towards. Um, I guess, like incorporating seal into our lives, whether it is consuming it or adorning seal products uh, like adorning seal furs and adorning seal leather. So that's all very interesting to me. And I guess if people want to learn more information, you can go to CanadianSealProducts.com or you can also visit the Fur Institute of Canada because they're the national voice for the fur sector, which includes the seal industry. So I think that those are all really good resources for people who are looking for a little bit more information.
0: Well, that was a great interview. I hope you found it stimulating and informative.
1: That is like the most vanilla close-off I've ever heard, Andre. I was expecting you to be like, "Now oh, I think you should go out and order some seal meat from the website we mentioned.
0: You can't. I already tried.
1: Oh, you know what? It was funny. Leaning into this interview, uh, leaning into like the finishing of the recording of this, I actually had thought about going on the website, ordering some seal meat, having to show up at your door and kind of being like, and now that we finished the interview, we actually got some seal meat, cooked it, and tried it. I guess, uh, I guess you basically already
0: Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode coming up in two weeks. Subscribe, uh, like, leave a no, review, not like,
1: subscribe, yeah, like, subscribe, like, leave a review. We're still getting a hang of this, guys. How many weeks can we keep saying this before you tell us it's not appropriate for us to be like we can't figure out the radio to podcast formatics yet?
0: Not until we're as big as Joe Rogan.
1: Oh god, I can't believe you name here. Thanks guys. We'll see you SEO. next time. <laughs>